I'm so interested in in what you've been doing uh, since leaving Think Progress with accountability journalism. Can you tell us a little bit both about the the focus, what accountability journalism is, and and also uh, a little bit about like the decision to become an, a totally independent um, journalist who is supported by uh, donations from readers. I think that I started this about 18 months ago and I wasn't entirely sure whether or not that it, it would work, but I became aware of a company called Substack, which basically provides a suite of tech tools that allows you to get people to pay money uh, for a newsletter. So I thought, well, um, you know, that gets me uh, part of the way there. And uh, if I could, if I could get, have all the tech taken care of, you know, maybe I could make it work um, on the journalism side. And I just sort of jumped in uh, with kind of no expectations. Uh, but I think, you know, what I found having started it is that there is a real, both a need, like there's never any shortage of ideas and stories that you could dive into as a journalistic, as an independent journalist. Uh, but also there's a lot of people who are hungry for this kind of content and really respond well to it. So the, I think I was a little bit fortunate in, in the timing because uh, I think I started when people were looking, uh, beginning to look for uh, more uh, alternatives, maybe getting a little bit frustrated with their, with their current media diet. Uh, and also the combination of that with, you know, access to really easy technology so that I could focus on my, my writing and reporting. Right. So they, it's, it's almost like how uh, everybody became bloggers when blogging technology started, right? So have you seen a lot of follow-on uh, to the kind of work and more people using Substack? Yeah. I mean, I think that people are starting to, um, people are starting to use it more. I think it's growing. Uh, I have a, a friend of mine, Emily Aiken, who started a great newsletter that's focused on climate change uh, and doing a lot of the same things around accountability journalism, but just focusing on climate issues um, more consistently. Uh, so I do think that it could be a model that could work for people. You know, it's, there are some challenges. I don't want to um, sugarcoat it too much because you really are on your, you know, on your own uh, as far as the marketing, as far as the editing, as far as the research, <laughs> as far as the writing. So you got to kind of be, you know, I don't know if you could do it as the very first thing you're doing in journalism because you, you've got to be able to be comfortable take, you know, wearing all those hats. But I think for people that are, um, it, it may be a, a, a viable option, especially as we're seeing so many of the traditional journalistic outlets get hollowed out um, and, and people getting laid off. And even the people who aren't getting laid off, um, the real problem is the kind of economic pressures which are focused on how many clicks you can get to a story. You know, it doesn't reward um, I think the kind of journalism that, that we really need. Uh, so, so the incentives aren't lined up well. And there's a lot of people who are very talented journalists who end up having to respond to a kind of perverse set of, of incentives and requirements in their job. 
You're talking about things like the, the, the fact that so much of the distribution now is, is algorithmic where you have to get people to engage and click and comment uh, in a way that maybe doesn't reflect the importance of the story. Yeah, I think, and, and also, I just think that it doesn't reward original work mm. uh, because it, you're never going to, in terms of just raw clicks, um, get a payoff on doing, the, doing original work versus just seeing what everyone else is doing and kind of summarizing it and putting a snappy headline on it. Because you can do that in five minutes, whereas, you know, it might take you, 20 hours to actually do a piece or 120 hours. Um, but when you, when you kind of get away from the ad supported model uh, and you're looking to form deeper connections with your readers, you know, the, the way in which people will pay money for you is to kind of form a deep connection and show them some deeper meaning in your work. So, so the economic incentives and the, and what your journalistic at least just speaking for myself what i want my journalistic priorities to be i want to try to do something um that's that's new and meaningful and that doesn't always mean it's it's you know 100 percent original stuff every single day but it all lie it does line up um, much better so i think that that's just encouraging right and I, i'm guessing that uh being an established uh, journalist, it makes it easier to get your calls returned. I'm interested in talking about uh, the themes that you cover on your newsletter, popular information. One thing I see a lot of is, uh, is media criticism. Uh, another is like campaign finance reporting. You've called out a lot of hypocrisy by uh, big companies that say one thing for their PR and uh, you know, whether you want to call it greenwashing or LGBT washing, and then they're giving uh, a lot of money to, uh, to politicians who are uh, either anti-gay or uh, pro-fossil fuel or both. Um, and then the one that, that um, in my line of work I'm really interested in is, is the uh, uh, going after Facebook in terms of uh, policy um, decisions around how political content is promulgated on the platform. What, what other themes do you see as part of this accountability journalism that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think the way I think about it is, you know, I'm looking towards centers of power. Um, so that's how I kind of got on, on Facebook, is, uh, is obviously it's an extremely powerful force uh, throughout the entire world maybe more powerful in terms of the information people receive than any government. Um, so they certainly seem to view themselves that way. They're, they're creating their own currency and everything else. So that, I think I then look to those entities and see like what kind of scrutiny we can apply to make sure or to, to scrutinize whether they're acting ethically, responsibly, consistently. And I think when you do that, you know, at first when I was kind of getting my, my sea legs with it, it's, you know, you're kind of casting around for, for ideas and angles. But once you sort of see what's happening, you know, I could write a whole newsletter and only write on Facebook at this point. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, I've got to really push the other way and say, uh, okay, I, I need to be a little more selective because pretty soon I'm going to have a, just a Facebook newsletter. 
uh, <laughs> which I, it is which it is a daily in, yeah yeah I know that uh, even as I was preparing for this uh, conversation, it was like hard to keep up with the with the flurry of news. There was the thing with this puff piece in Teen Vogue uh, profiling five women leaders at Facebook, but it had the headline of like how Facebook is is protecting the election for 2020, and people were not buying that. One of yeah. the issues that we've covered here, and I, I have been engaged in personal activism around, is this issue of Facebook allowing politicians to lie in ads. And as I've worked on the issue, I've found that th this is a longstanding practice, but what you uncovered in your newsletter is that, and your, your reporting is that they made some tweaks to the policy to continue to make sure that Donald Trump is able to basically do whatever he wants uh, with paid ads. In, in my activism, I've done things like blatantly false uh, things that are prima facie false that I've, you know, uh, let the media know so that there's a story that, that describes why I'm doing it. Can you tell us a little bit about your reporting on what Trump is doing and, and, and why um, the, the, it's important to his campaign to be able to say whatever they want on Facebook? Yeah, you know, I really came out of, came at, at this as, as a researcher, uh, which is kind of my orientation as a journalist. I mean, I, I like to develop sources, but I think my advantage is just the ability to kind of dig into um, big, big pots of information. So I saw that Facebook this year, basically in response to what happened in 2016, created the ad library, which means the ads are no longer essentially secret. This really is really started for me just by paying really close attention to what Trump was doing. And starting last spring, I would contact the, you know, press blacks at Facebook and ask them about different Trump ads that were untrue, because I noticed they were untrue. And I also noticed that they uh, had a prohibition against that right in their rules. And so I, I probably asked them about a dozen different ads and I would report on them, but unlike some of my other stories about Facebook, they would never get back to me. They would never <laughs> provide any response. And I wasn't quite sure why. I mean, I thought maybe they're just ignoring their rule, uh, but this, this occurred to gather more and more um, attention and uh, eventually in just one of my routine requests, they, they told me that their policy was not to fact check politicians and they sent me their uh, the language that that supported that and I noticed well this isn't the language that I've been looking at for the last you know six months so they did make a change they used to have a prohibition on lies which they weren't enforcing but they they at least had that and they got rid of it um, and it's one thing that they won't admit that they've done they, they like to say that uh, they've had the same um, policy for years, but it's really not true. They changed it uh, in order to kind of um, create a justification for um, allowing all of these uh, posts. And one of the things that's, that's interesting about it, of course, is that we never, we haven't had a politician who's had access to Facebook, who's been willing to use the platform to say absolutely anything. And so although it applies to all politicians, it's really Trump and Trump alone who's going to get the full benefit of it.
Right. And I, and I noticed that in, in some of the more recent uh, statements from Facebook, they've made it clear that it's politicians and political parties. And, you That's know, true, yeah. the way that Trump has kind of uh, taken over the Republican Party, I think, you know, you're seeing a, a tandem strategy that is now, uh, you know, something that makes Bush era lying seem kind of quaint. Um, Although, although Bush, you know, and his team were fond of manipulation, I think it, it's just the scale. I, I have a friend who's a reporter in San Francisco who does uh, real estate reporting, and he said he was mm -hmm. on the phone with Trump once, and Trump uh, talked to him for a long time, this was several years ago, about plans to build in San Francisco and to have a, uh, uh, you know, branded um, development. And then after he got off the phone, he did his, his legwork to confirm what Trump had told him, and he said it was like all made up. It was just like the conversations Trump referenced didn't happen or were different. And, um, I, you know, it, 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 this combination of Facebook and Trump is, is pretty nuts. Can you tell us about the, um, the fake contest that you uh, discovered? Yeah, I, you know, this is just a product of kind of being an obsessive. Uh, and so I am looking at his uh, looking at this, this library every day because every day Trump produces probably 300, 500 new ads, and you can just go and scroll through them. So I just noticed there kept on being all these contests, but you never hear anything about them, um, you know, either on his Twitter or, or anywhere. Um, so I started um, kind of poking around, and I wasn't sure how I was going to determine whether there were actually winners to this contest. So one time he was in Chicago, and it was the day that he was supposed to essentially have lunch with one of the winners for one of these contests. And so I contacted a Washington Post reporter who was the press um, uh, pool reporter that day. And I asked her, hey, could you ask someone there if you could you know, find out who won the contest? So I think they're having lunch with him, with that, with that person, um, you know, any, any minute now. And she did and didn't get any response. Uh, including doing a follow-up. So there I felt like, well, I had enough to at least raise questions. And so I put together the fact that, you know, there had been 15 or 16 contests. And although politicians typically are happy to show um, them having dinner with, you know, a grassroots small dollar supporter, um, there was no evidence that any of these that happened. That kind of started rocketing around and, and getting some attention. And there was some pickup from some other publications. And eventually what happened was that Trump, the Trump campaign uh, leaked some information to the Daily Caller. But the best they could come up with of these 16 contests was one woman who had won a contest for a breakfast in New York City. And she did have breakfast in New York City, but, but Trump did not attend. And that was their that was their evidence. So, so right now we've got 16 contests, and we've got so far we've got evidence that in one case the contest was a fraud. There was no breakfast with Trump. So, I think that it's that kind of just like kind of string pulling um, that's that's important. And I think that a lot of the people in sort of traditional media or big media organizations are very hesitant to to do this kind of stuff because they're focused and they're concerned about maintaining good relationships with, you know, the campaigns that they cover and, and making sure that they have sources. And, and I'd like to have sources too, but I always just, I, I kind of subordinate that to trying to just get the best story that I can.
Yeah, it's interesting because when uh, my PAC did a an ad uh, about the Green New Deal that was a blatantly false ad that, that went somewhat viral, um, one of the journalists who covered it said, oh, yeah, you know, I wished I could have done something like that. And I think everyone was thinking the same thing. But most journalists aren't allowed to, like, create a fake ad and broadcast it, you know. Uh, to test yeah, Facebook that is policy. true, and and I think and I think there's I think there's like a spectrum of 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 all of this, and, right? Like Reuters um, to Daily you know, Beast or something, you know, or, da- or yeah. BuzzFeed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. So, is he still doing the contest, or did you scare them enough to stop it? Well, he stopped for a while, but he's got one. I just got a text uh, about a contest in Florida that mm-hmm. he's supposed to have dinner. Uh, he's, he's doing a contest for dinner in Florida. Now, you know, maybe now they'll have the dinner. Uh, I don't know. Uh, or maybe they're just going to continue uh, going down that path. My view is what happens is he doesn't want to have a meal with, with the winners of these contests. So what happens is they have a meal. And then sometime after the meal, he drops by and takes a photo with him, mm-hmm. with them, which would, be, which would be fine if that's what they said the contest was. Right. But but the the language is very explicit that like I really want to have share a meal with you I want to hear about all of your ideas et cetera et cetera so really the con- one thing I've noticed just the contempt that Trump the Trump campaign holds for their own supporters is really shocking to me on on there's like a whole number of levels and, and a lot of the lies are just they're kind of petty um, but yeah you talked about like they, uh, they, they really hold them as contempt like yeah. midnight deadline and it's not really like they'll run the same exact ad with a different midnight deadline, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that I haven't reported that is just constant is this idea that he's authorized a three times match for every donor or a four times match for every donor. I mean, this it's very clear that that is not happening because you would have to actually solicit millions of dollars and say, those people will only give the money if they're matching low dollar contributions. And like if someone gives $500 or like let's say someone gives $1,000, you can't even have a four times match of a $1,000 contribution because the other person would be violating the law. So I just, right. you know, that I think they just, it, and it's all random, you know, two times, three times, four times, five times. They're, they never, they're never soliciting any of the matching funds. It's interesting because they've taken this um, really kind of scammy affiliate marketing style of advertising and moved it into politics wholesale and maybe even upped upped it a notch because of Trump's own personality and proclivity for this stuff. So Facebook is saying that this year they're coming out with this new board that will be an independent, heavily funded, like tens of millions of dollars uh, content board, which will help adjudicate issues of people's content being taken down. And especially after the reaction just, uh, you know, in early January here to the Teen Vogue puff piece about election integrity, do you think that uh, journalists and academics are going to flock to this board? Or do you think it's going to be really um, something that people question? And it concerns me, I guess, that Facebook is paying all the fact checkers around the world 
who are then told hands off of politicians on our platform. So w- will this be like that, or, or do you think that they'll they'll get some traction? I don't have high hopes for it. I think a lot of the people who have partnered with Facebook have not had a good experience. Um, I know Snopes terminated their fact checking relationship because they were unhappy with it. Um, and I think there were some others who, who ended up uh, ending their fact-checking relationship. I think good people are going to be really hesitant um, to join such a board. And, and the other issue is just the scale on which Facebook operates. The idea that there's going to be one board uh, that's going to be able to make a difference in providing some fairness about the decisions, I think is not realistic. I mean, I'm, con- I'm contacted. I haven't really had a chance to get into this except on a couple of occasions, but I'm contacted all the time by people who, you know, have had their content censored or removed uh, by Facebook. Uh, a lot of them on the left. Um, and you know, right. You did something about it like an publicity. Alaskan radio station? Yeah. Yeah, I did that. I did do that because I thought it was interesting enough. But basically, this Alaskan radio station basically did I think it was probably the absolute reverse of the clickbait article. Like it was about this very arcane local ballot initiative and explaining, I think it was like three or four tax related local ballot initiatives. So it was, it was, it was the opposite and they got dinged um, for uh, clickbait. Uh, So they, so they, so this local station in Alaska serving like small Alaskan communities tried to like get out information about ballot initiatives was in Facebook jail. Um, And I, and I published it. And of course, like a day later, they're like, Oh, it was just a mistake. But you know, there's so many mistakes that are made because they're trying to, they're trying to do all this on algorithms. And the reality is it's just too big of a platform. So, you know, maybe the board will help a little, maybe some other things they would help a little, but you know, the reason why, they are profitable is because they have this huge, this huge platform and they only make, you know, minimal investments in doing anything with the content uh, that's, that's on there. Um, and so that's, I think that, I think there's just a, I think there's just a tension and they know that. And so I think all of their um, proposed solutions generally are, um, you know, they're very surface level. Right. It's interesting. Uh, one thing I've thought about recently is that the nature of a flat stream where the ads are basically indistinguishable from other content. And they seem very keen on keeping that because the problem with the internet before was that the ads were annoying. Pop-up ads, um, you know, banner ads that were uh, intrusive. Like you go onto almost any mainstream news site and it's overwhelmingly awful with ads. And Facebook doesn't really have that feel, even though they push just as many ads as anyone else. So one question before um, we let you go here is, is how can uh, folks find more of your work? And is there anything that you have planned for 2020 that you want to preview for us? Uh, well, you can just go to popular.info and you can sign up for the newsletter. Um, you could actually sign up for free and I'll send you one or two newsletters a week. And then if you feel like you want to get a little more and support it, then you can decide whether you want to pay for it. Um, so it is, so it is free to sign up. Uh, I've got a lot planned, uh, for 2020. I think, you know, one thing you mentioned that was a focus, I did a lot, I did a 
probably more of this in 2018 was campaign finance. So I'm going to be really scrutinizing all of the FEC filings. They start coming out at a, um, a more uh, aggressive clip monthly instead of uh, quarterly uh, in an election year. And there's a lot of information about what's happening and how the money is flowing. And I think, you know, following the money, it's sort of like the oldest kind of, kind of journalistic cliche, but mm -hmm. it, there's a reason, there's a reason why, <laughs> you know, people say that a lot. Uh, so I think, I think that's, that's a big one. The, the online uh, campaign is going to be, uh, continue to be, um, you know, a big uh, a focus uh, of mine. Um, but also I think fundamentally uh, just continuing to scrutinize um, the, the massive inequities in power uh, between most Americans and, and these huge forces and, and continuing to see what I can do to kind of scrutinize that and, and maybe make um, some people uncomfortable, hopefully. Well, that's uh, real journalism. Well, thank you, Judd, so much yeah. for uh, joining me here. Thanks so much. Really happy to be here. So I also wanted to talk today about a few of the stories I've been reading. Um, as I discussed with Judd, uh, this Facebook news is just so uh, fast and furious. Even today as we're recording, uh, there was a New York Times piece picked up by a bunch of others uh, just basically saying that Facebook is not going to make any policy changes around political advertising or continue to allow politicians to lie. It's kind of the Trump exemption we were talking about that's now spilling over the Republican Party and, and other politicians. Um, but there was an amazing article in BuzzFeed, and we'll, we'll try to get you links to these in the, the show notes uh, when we uh, put this up. BuzzFeed did this uh, really in-depth report, and it's called Disinformation for Hire, How a New Breed of PR Firms is Selling Lies Online. And they really look at one of the problems we've already talked about uh, on Adriel versus the Oligarchs, which is uh, all over the world, uh, we have marketing firms that are using often uh, really inciting content, inciting of, of people's emotions, anger, uh, sometimes even violence to or hatred, uh, hatred for minorities or hatred for people of other political parties. Um, and they're just really they're doing a great job of doing bad things. This says um, one paragraph, if disinformation in 2016 was characterized by Macedonian spammers pushing pro-Trump fake news and Russian trolls running rampant on platforms, 2020 is shaping up to be the year communications pros for hire provide sophisticated online propaganda operations to anyone willing to pay. Around the globe, politicians, parties, governments, and other clients hire what they know, what is known in the industry as black PR firms to spread lies and manipulate online discourse. And this is a little bit of, of what we talked about with these dark ads on Facebook. This article is really uh, amazing in the depth and uh, breadth of these PR firms doing uh, disinformation and, and propaganda online. Uh, some of them have sophisticated tools and some of them have uh, operations like almost like sweatshop style operations with lots of young employees doing lots of clicking and commenting. Another story that stuck out this week was coverage of Andrew Bosworth. Uh, he's a uh, Facebook executive who was running their advertising in 2016 and has a lot of insight into the political advertising program there at Facebook. I don't agree with everything he said. I, I hope 
we can link to this Facebook post in our, our show notes. But he talks about Cambridge Analytica, which he thinks uh, their impact has been overplayed. He thinks that they're more of a uh, slick sales folks rather than great, uh, great data leveragers. But one thing that really stuck out is, is first he says that, that the Trump campaign was absolutely brilliant and that's why they won using Facebook. But then he says they didn't micro-target and then in the next sentence, he says they just used our tools to get the right creative to the right people, which is exactly what microtargeting is. That was strange. And then he neglects the fact that Facebook embedded employees and gave special attention and care to the Trump campaign, which embraced all the bennies from Facebook. So um, Facebook kind of kind of really crafting its own narrative about what happened in 2016 and, and their plans for 2020. Interestingly, he criticizes people who internally at Facebook jump all over the media for being inaccurate. And he says they don't have the full picture and that's because we try to keep it from them. So Facebook is, is really in kind of duck and cover mode, although as Jed points out there, uh, perhaps more powerful than any uh, government in the world as far as it comes to the spread of information. And um, the last story on this saying uh, that I want to cover is, uh, is from Vice. And this one came out just before Christmas and I missed it before now. And the headline is how Breitbart is crushing mainstream media on Facebook. The crazy thing is it, it's basically showing how Breitbart is now getting more reach on Facebook than uh, outlets like uh, CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today combined. Uh, and that's with just 4 million followers. They're getting uh, that kind of, uh, of, of action. Those are the, uh, the likes, comments, and shares on Facebook, uh, beating all of these other networks. And these news networks say, similar to Judd's point about quality journalism versus uh, kind of the, the breaking news and chasing the story everyone else has. Breitbart is able to do these, these short, very uh, intense kind of pro-Trump, feed the base uh, type posts, get them up. While uh, if you're actually covering uh, a breadth of news, uh, you're not as, as likely to get the level of virality on Facebook. Despite this, uh, Breitbart is still arguing that, that there's a bias against them on the platform. And that's what I find to be incredibly uh, laughable. Finally, I want to give you our tech segment. And one piece of news that caught my eye that, that I think is really interesting is that at the Computer and Electronics Show, the annual conference where a bunch of folks show off like everything from concept cars to uh, new features of their platforms, I think that uh, like I think PlayStation showed off a logo for PlayStation 5, and that was like their big unveil. So it, it really is a range of things. Twitter uh, released the news that they are updating reply settings. When you compose a tweet, they're making it so you can choose uh, who can reply to that. And they've already rolled out some features related to this that allow um, users to hide some of the replies to their tweets. Um, this new one is interesting because the features already somewhat exist, and I have advocated use of them for people who find uh, Twitter trolls to be overwhelming. Um, one of the features of Twitter is that you have these users who have sometimes just a handful of followers, sometimes no followers, and all they do is reply. And if they reply to you and, and um, you don't really take any action, then hardly anyone sees their tweets because they don't have their own following. But if you get outraged by their 
comments and you reply to them or you, you start a conversation or you, you, you know, quote tweet it, uh, all of a sudden they have a big audience. And I think that that's uh, really what these accounts exist to do is to bait uh, larger accounts into conversations that elevate the points that they're making in the comments. And these are uh, often, I, I believe they're related to troll farming where people are managing multiple accounts uh, or, or managing these, these blatantly uh, anonymous accounts. Or they also might just be uh, your garden variety trolls who have one account and all they want to do is, uh, is incite uh, replies from people. So if you are uh, you know, going to use this new feature, you could for example, say that on a certain tweet, only people who you follow can reply to you. But if you go into Twitter settings, you can actually customize your experience quite a bit. A lot of Twitter for power users is driven by notifications uh, when someone likes your tweet or retweets it or replies to you. Um, and all you need to do is go uh, into your profile and you click, uh, or actually just onto the left-hand side of Twitter, click more settings and privacy, and then uh, in settings and privacy notifications. And then there's a, a setting called advanced filters. And it says that you can mute notifications from other Twitter users. And you can choose to mute people that you don't follow, who don't follow you, who have a brand new account, who still have a default profile photo, uh, who've never confirmed their email or their phone number. And I use those settings a lot and it screens out probably 30% of the replies to my tweets um, from what I can tell. And I can still see those tweets, other people can still see them, but they no longer uh, like jump out at me. And I like to use it where anyone can have those interactions. But I guess if you're a really big user and you don't want someone arguing in the comments with trolls or things like that, these new settings are going to be interesting. But my, I guess, fondness for Twitter comes from the ability to filter and control some of the ways you're presented information and you're using the platform. I feel like it's much more simple to do that than on Facebook. And also, I like Twitter because you're interacting a lot with journalists. You know, that's how I got to know Judd, I think I learned of popular information probably from Twitter before I subscribed. And I, I would definitely urge folks to subscribe. It's, it's one of the best newsletters that I've seen and, and uh, comes from a real depth of, of sourcing and, and research uh, ability. But yeah, if you want to have a, a better Twitter experience. Uh, we'll also link to, the, to a tweet where I explain and have a screenshot of these filters. And I'm eager to see uh, how the new features uh, work as they roll out and who's using them and, and how people are using them and you know whether I want to use them uh, myself.